and Senator Kent Eakin. How are you doing, Senator Kent? Hi, Luke. I'm doing well. Thanks. Senator it's Eakin. good to be here. <laughs> good. Yeah. Senator uh, Eakin and I are used to that. <laughs> yeah, I assume at oh. this point, right? You've had a few of those, I'm sure. All right. Hello and welcome to Call of the Senate, a podcast presented by the Minnesota Senate DFL Caucus. Um, our topic today is support for working families in Minnesota. And this has been a caucus-wide priority up until this moment and will continue to be for the rest of the year. Uh, this session, uh, members of the Senate DFL Caucus are working on measures related to housing, paid leave, rural broadband, and long-term care, among others. And we're going to discuss these issues and others today with our three guests, uh, Senate DFL leader Susan Kent and Senator Kerry Diedzik and Senator Kent Eakin. How are you doing, Senator Kent? Hi, Luke. I'm doing well. Thanks. Senator it's Eakin. good to be here. <laughs> good. Yeah. Senator, Senator uh, Eakin and I are used to that. <laughs> yeah, I assume at oh. this point, right? You've had a few of those, I'm sure. Thank you all for taking the time to join us today. Uh, let's get started with our conversation right away. Um, Leader Kent, I'd like to start with you. Uh, you know, you first authored the paid uh, family and medical leave legislation in, in 2017, and you're still fighting for it today. Um, and last week, you held a press conference with the lieutenant governor and DFL leadership uh, to talk about this issue. And I'm just wondering if you can share uh, with our audience how you got involved in this issue and, and why it's so important to you. Well, this is an issue that uh, Minnesota DFL members of the Senate and across the, the leadership of the DFL have been fighting for for a long time. And in fact, um, uh, before I carried the bill, we actually passed out of the DFL controlled Senate a modified version of it um, several years ago. And then um, we had some changes, a new election and new members, and I was honored to be able to be the next chief author of this. You know, it is just such a big issue for families and working families in particular. Um, and, you know, one of the facts that always sticks in my head, and this is in the traditional mode of maternity leave, but we know that this is bigger than that. But in the, there is a, a statistic that sticks with me. 25% of mothers have to go back to work two weeks after giving birth. One in four mothers have to do that. That's not okay. That's not good for them. It certainly isn't good for their babies and their families. And we have to do better. And so um, we also know it's bigger than that. It's parental leave. It's adopting babies. It's if um, you have other family members who are who need care, or for um, uh, uh, for oneself, if you have a big injury or a, a, a significant illness, it's it's a big deal. And that's why it's so important to me. Certainly. And, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, many people in Minnesota still don't, as, as you mentioned as well, still don't have paid family and medical leave. And I'm just wondering if you could sort of lay out, you know, for a family that, uh, you know, a working family may have kids, what, what, sick, uh, what sick time and paid leave would look like? What, what difference would it make in their everyday life? And, and why would it be beneficial to, uh, to, work, to, to working families in the state of Minnesota? Well, the pandemic has really shown how important this is. And it's important to think because the, the longer term paid family and medical leave is for longer term leaves, illnesses, new baby, um, family member. Um, earned sick time, paid sick time is when you have the flu. And if you're working in a restaurant or with the public, you need to be able to safely stay home and get better and also not make the other people around you sick. Um, but too many people, um, whether it's the longer term paid leave or the short, shorter term sick leave, uh, they, that's a tough choice because they're having to make that decision between taking care of themselves and the other people that they're responsible for um, or putting food on the table for their family. 
Um, if I may, I might move on here to uh, discuss the Senator Eakin. I know you've been working on, on long-term care quite a bit. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just share with the listeners a little bit about, you know, what long, long-term care is, and if you could just talk about the work that you've been doing on this issue and, and, and why it's so important to have quality uh, long-term care uh, for, the, for the Minnesotans who need it. Sure. Well, long-term care covers a lot of different types of services, including nursing homes and group homes, including assisted living, including in-home services. So there's a, a, a huge variety of different services that are covered under long-term care. It's critically important for our society, especially now, uh, because of the baby boom generation approaching years now when many of them are going to need long-term care services and people are living longer, especially those uh, in the disability community, we've seen life expectancy increase considerably. So the numbers of people needing these services is, is really increasing significantly uh, so fast that we've never seen anything like it in world history in terms of the number of people who are going to be needing long-term care services as a proportion of the population. Um, and so we need to expand services in order to meet that demand. And everybody agrees that we have a problem here that this is coming, these, these, these increasing demands are happening. Uh, but there seems to be a lot of people who choose to ignore it. And that's the, the problem, one of the major problems that I see uh, because it is such a challenging problem. And uh, many people sometimes would prefer not to deal with challenging problems. I, I tell this story sometimes to illustrate the point, but I started to learn how to fly a little airplane about uh, 18 years ago. And um, I used to, I, I flew down to the cities quite often and oftentimes at night. And I had a more experienced pilot that was giving me advice as to what to do at night if you have engine failure, if your engine quits on you. And uh, it was beautiful flying at night with all the lights down below, but it's also more dangerous because it's hard to know where to put the plane down. And this more experienced pilot told me what you do is you glide the airplane down to an area that you think looks good. And when you're about 100 feet off the ground, you turn on the lights, the landing lights, uh, to illuminate what's in front of you so you can see where you're landing. So he said, you turn on the landing lights, and if you don't like what you see, turn them off again. And that was the end of his advice. Now, that was a joke, uh, but the reason I tell that is because there's a lot of people who govern like that, who, when they see a difficult, challenging problem, they just turn off the lights and pretend it's not there. But if we do that, we're gonna land in a very bad spot with disastrous consequences. And that's why uh, I've introduced a, a constitutional amendment that would create a dedicated fund for long-term care for our most vulnerable citizens, both seniors and those with disabilities who need these services. Um, I, I see it as shining the spotlight on the problem because it will be on the ballot as a constitutional amendment. Uh, it will require uh, discussion and, and engaging the general public on the issue, which I think is badly needed at this time. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that it, it belongs in the Constitution because this should be a priority. We have all kinds of other constitutionally dedicated funding, including funding for roads and bridges, funding for parks and trails, funding for wildlife habitat, uh, funding for clean water, for history centers, uh, for public broadcasting, but we have nothing for our most vulnerable citizens. And if anybody needs constitutionally protected and dedicated funding more, it's our most vulnerable. So it's time to make them a priority um, and to ensure that uh, we're not leaving anybody behind in our society. I take great pride 
and coming from the state of Minnesota because we are known as a state that leaves no one behind and that ensures everybody has the opportunity to lead, lead a life of dignity and respect and have opportunity. And that requires that we make these needed investments uh, in our most vulnerable and their future. Well, I think you make a great analogy there with the uh, story about landing the plane and the landing lights. And I think that there's another complicated, tough issue that can't be solved by turning off the landing lights. And that's the issue of rural broadband, which I know that you've uh, worked on quite a bit. And I'm wondering if you could just share with us what you've been working on, uh, why that's important, and what differences might it make in rural communities like yours if um, they're able to have access to, uh, to rural broadband that they, that they deserve. Right, and, and, and Luke, this fits in with not leaving anyone behind and not leaving any communities behind, making sure that everybody has opportunities to develop you know, to their fullest potential and to, to be successful in our state. And unfortunately, there are a lot of areas in our state that do not have full opportunity because of a lack of internet services. And uh, we are pursuing border-to-border -border broadband uh, to ensure that, both, that, that, that we both bring those that are in underserved areas up to speed and those who are in unserved areas, uh, hooking them up uh, for internet services. Uh, it, 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 I think that the, the parallel here uh, with our past is, is what happened during the Great Depression even during the greatest economic disaster in our country's history, uh, our leaders still understood the importance of making investments in our rural communities. And that's why we uh, started the Rural Electric Association during the Great Depression to hook up all rural communities to electricity. And, and uh, I still remember my dad talking about when electricity first came to the farm uh, where he lived and how it transformed their lives, their quality of life, their standard of living and how it enabled them uh, to, uh, uh, to be more successful. And so broadband has the same potential to do that for our rural communities. And really, I mean, broadband services, they're no longer a luxury. They are now a necessity uh, for communities to survive and to thrive. And that's been highlighted uh, by the pandemic. The pandemic has really shined a spotlight on the importance of broadband services for our communities, uh, for, for, for their schools, uh, for work, uh, and for, for healthcare services. It is becoming absolutely uh, necessary uh, to achieving the goals of, of uh, a good quality of life. And so um, the governor has proposed $50 million uh, uh, for broadband services. There's bills to do even more yet. And I think we need to do all we can uh, to, to hook up uh, communities across the state. And it's not just rural communities that will, uh, that will benefit from this uh, because our whole state benefits when everybody does better. We all do better when we all do better. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly well, right. I, sorry, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Leader Ken. No, I was just going to say, um, you know, uh, Senator Eakin made a really great point. And one of the challenges in the legislature is we tend to work by committee, right? And so, you know, you focus on an issue that is in your particular committee. Broadband covers so many of these different areas. He talked about schools and education. We talk about, I mean, the pandemic has really helped telehealth, telemedicine just explode beyond where it had been before. And we know that that's going to be a benefit for 
people across the state, but particularly in rural areas where they may have farther to travel to get to see a doctor and if the weather's bad or something. But um, uh, another area, I know Senator Dietzik's going to talk about housing. I was speaking with some housing advocates not that long ago. You know, in the course of the pandemic, the state made resources available to support families who were struggling with their housing because of job loss or income loss. And one of the challenges was they realized that there are just people who couldn't access those resources because they didn't have broadband. This covers so many different aspects of our lives, just like Senator Eakin was saying. And that's why it, it requires all of us to stay focused on it so it doesn't drop between the cracks. Well, that leads us perfectly into our next topic of discussion, of discussion that we wanted to uh, talk about today. Uh, and Senator Dietzik, as you know, Leader Kent had mentioned, uh, you've been uh, quite an advocate on housing and have worked in that issue area for, for quite a while. Um, and earlier you mentioned the, the Bring It Home Minnesota bill, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that, your work on that, and, and what that would uh, do and uh, services it might provide to uh, people who are, uh, are in need or, or uh, who are paying quite a lot for their housing. Thanks, Luke. Yes, so the Bring It Home Minnesota bill is uh, a partnership with a whole bunch of um, housing communities, faith communities, um, and across the state of Minnesota. So there's about pre-COVID, about 550,000 families paid more than 30% of their income for housing. And that 30% is kind of a benchmark. Um, because if you're paying more than that, then, you know, you don't have a lot left for other necessities like food and clothing. So um, this bill will help. Um, basically, it provides assistance for certain families, mostly low income families who are paying more than that 30% to help them get into stable housing and keep them in stable housing. Um, so as we've talked about before, the pandemic has shown a spotlight on so many things. It's shown a spotlight on the need for paid family leave. So you can, you know, don't have to go to work when you're sick and get others sick. Um, the need for broadband. Um, it's also shown the need for stable housing. So how do you stay home in a pandemic when you don't have a home? So we really need to um, look at that big spectrum and get people into their homes across that spectrum. So um, we are short about 50,000 housing units, and that's from public housing all the way to senior housing. And so with that shortage, and then with the cost, we just need to we just need to do more. And it needs to be a strategic investment to help all Minnesotans. Um, the uh, housing is so important because um, you know, just think about it. If you don't, at the end of the day, if you don't have a place to go home and rest your head, how, how does that, especially when we have 20 below weather, what does that do to just you planning out your day and to be able to get things done? Stable, affordable housing helps kids and their and kids and families. It improves education outcomes. It actually helps health outcomes. And that makes a lot of sense because if you're dealing with health issues and literally have to plan medication and stuff like that, it helps being in a home that you can plan all that. And it also helps helps keep workers um, employed because if you have, again, a place to go home, you can just get your life more organized and centered. And so this bill really is about helping Minnesotans and helping not just those individual families, but again, when we all do better, we all do better. And that will help our Minnesota economy. You know, we've heard in the committee many times that there are, you know, and this was pre-pandemic, but as we grow out of this pandemic, we're going to run into the same things where companies have jobs, but they can't get workers because they are not homes. And so this has been an issue, again, that I think we all agree on. And I think I'm going to use uh, Senator Eakin's analogy that we need to turn those lights on and we need to keep those lights on because we can't turn the lights off and ignore the problem because um, we just can't do that as we come out of the pandemic. Uh, I had three encampments within walking distance of my home this summer. 
that's just not acceptable. Again, we are, we live in, you know, what I used to think of, and I still think of as a great nation. And we need to take care, we need to take care of everybody. And that includes housing and getting people housing. Um, and the bill is bring it home, Minnesota, it's Senate file 333. And it, you know, it, it's not cheap. But if you look at the flip side, housing is actually cheaper than homelessness. And you think of if you got better outcomes, if you got better health outcomes and education outcomes, then, you know, there is a there is a savings in the end. And so, you know, it's about going big so that everybody can go home. Well, and housing, rural broadband uh, and uh, paid family leave, sick leave, these all fit into the broader discussion of supporting working families, which we've been quite focused on. Um, and so while those are really broad themes that we've discussed today, I also wanted to get into one sort of nitty gritty uh, niche issue uh, related to uh, housing with uh, Senator Diedzik. Um, Senator Diedzik, you've been working on the, the sprinkler bill. And I think that that's a very, um, some, some might think of that as a small detail at first, but there's an important story behind it. And I'm wondering if you might be able to share you know, uh, why that's important and how that fits into broader themes around housing and, and safety for those who have, who do have housing. There's a fire in my district in the public housing building. Five people died. Um, that was on like the 16th floor. And it's a 1970s public housing building, high rise, 20 some stories. And unfortunately, the building did not have sprinklers. We've had this discussion numerous times before. If it was going to be built to code today, it would have sprinklers, but it was built in the 70s. And, um, you know, there's that balance of do you do you upgrade to do the sprinklers or do you put that money into more into more housing for more homeless and, and then just the cost of it. And so it didn't go through, but five people died. It impacted five lives. It impacted, I mean, the this is about safety. And again, that safe and stable, affordable housing. So the public housing is affordable. It is stable, but you know, there's the concern it's safe. And it's not just affordable, it's not just public housing. There are several other buildings that were built pre-1980s that don't have that um, sprinkler system and that's across the state. And so we have a bill that would mandate putting the sprinklers in. I think there are several different ways that this can be done. Um, and actually the insurance companies and many say that the um, reduced insurance pays for the cost of the sprinklers in the end. And so we think it's a, it's a workable solution. Again, this will help many, many families feel secure in their own, in their own homes. It helps tenants. Uh, it, you know, it's just something we should do. People, I, I really hope that we have no more fires where people die in their homes. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Thank you for that, Senator Dietzik. It's a, a tragic story, but we're, I'm, Glad to hear that you're taking action on it. And at this point, um, you know, we've gotten into a number of, dis of, of issues here, but I do want to open the floor. So if any of you have anything that you'd like to share at this point that, uh, you know, relates to our focus of this week and this session of supporting working families, please, I'd like to hear about any um, issues that you're working on, bills that you might have um, uh, in the works or anything that you're doing to help uh, make life a little bit easier on the, the working folks of Minnesota. I just, if I can just say for a minute, I'm, you know, this has been a process for our caucus to really work together and talk about what it is that we stand for, the things we really want to fight for for Minnesota, because we believe it's going to make a difference. And one of our major themes is supporting working families. And this is, these are some of the examples of the ways in which we're, that we believe um, we should do that because it's the right thing to do for those families. And because it's smart for Minnesota down the line, um, you know, 
what we know is that every single community, uh, no matter their zip code, their race or economic status, absolutely deserves the opportunity to thrive. And I'm so excited that our caucus has worked together to articulate these priorities. We know that as we're all recovering from the devastating effects of the pandemic, we have to support Minnesotans at home, in their workplace, and to help them stay connected. And we recognize that everybody from birth through aging, as you're hearing from all of these um, uh, policy ideas, should have access to affordable healthcare, safe and affordable housing, and economic security. Um, and it just ultimately goes back to what we keep coming, say what we keep saying: we all do better when we all do better. Exactly. Well, uh, Senators Eakin or Dietzik, do you have anything else that you'd like to add to the conversation here in terms of uh, you know whether it's affordable housing or uh, wages or good jobs? Uh, anything here that we've uh, that may be related to, to working families, we'd love to hear. I think Leader Kent did a great job of uh, summarizing that. I think we want to ensure that it, um, everybody across the state, it shouldn't matter on your zip code, your race, your religion, your gender, or who you love. We want everybody to be successful in Minnesota, and that's what we are working for. And that's, you know, part of our goal and the need for improving working families and the lives of working families. And uh, I, I too uh, concur with Senator Dietzik and uh, and uh, with uh, Senator Kent, and uh, uh, I think uh, Senator Kent did put it very well in, in explaining how important it is to to ensure that everywhere in our state there exists opportunity for people uh, and for communities, and uh, and no one area can hope to be an island of prosperity and a sea of economic decline. We're all in it together. We're all in the same boat and we need to recognize that if we wanna be a successful state. And I think one of the reasons we have ranked so high in terms of quality of life and standard of living is because we have as a state made investments in working people across the state to ensure everybody has opportunity because we all know, and, and one of the reasons, you know, I mean, education is a key to that. And one of the reasons education is so important is because it provides that opportunity that's so critical uh, to everybody's development. And when everybody has that opportunity, everybody contributes more back to society. So it's not a cost, it's an investment that pays off huge dividends. Well, that is a wonderful way to look at education. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think on that high note, uh, it might be a good idea to, to wrap up here, if that's all right. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us on today's episode of Call of the Senate, a podcast presented by the Senate, uh, the Minnesota Senate DFL Caucus. Our guests today were DFL leader Susan Kent, Senator Kent Eakin, and Senator Carrie Dietzik. Thank you all for joining us, uh, and have a lovely rest of your day. Find us online at senatedfl.mn or on social media under the username at Senate DFL. See you next week.